had every intention of, of, of going into Hebrews 3 today. I really did. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of a family-themed day, and the pastoral staff uh, thought that it would be a good thing to pause and to uh, just take a week to talk about families. So we've got you know, some, some, some of the kids doing the ushering and, and whatnot, and we had a baby dedication. And so we just thought it would be good to pause and to talk about the family and uh, what the Bible has to say about the family. And I right away had this idea that I would use this as an opportunity to hold up God's ideal for what a family should be and, and give some teaching maybe about how to uh, go towards that ideal and how to be great parents and how to have a great marriage and, and maybe come against some of the, the lousy films that we have on TV these days, The Simpsons, you know, and, and All in the Family, or not All in the Family, uh, Married with Children, and Murphy Brown, and to just come out, you know, preach family values there. But I like The Simpsons too much, so I couldn't do that. Uh, I, I'm only kidding. Sorry. But as I was preparing for this message, the Lord really led me, led me in a very different direction, a very different direction. So different that I want to say up front that I will, sorry, I will preach that message I just gave you at some point or something like that message. And I don't want anything I, I say here this morning to be taken as, as, any, as implying that I don't strongly, strongly believe in, in family values uh, and, and, uh, and in strengthening the family and holding up God's ideal and, and, and strengthening the covenant of marriage and so on and so on. But the Lord just really led me in a different direction here this morning. And it comes really out of looking at Jesus' family. I want to read a couple of verses here. They're found, or some of them are found in your bulletin. Some stuff that I had never really noticed, at least not noticed with the full impact that I'm having right now. In Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 20, it said, Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Now listen to this. When his family, we're talking his mother, his dad, his brothers, maybe some extended relatives, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. They wanted to get control of him. They were doing an intervention here, folks. For they said, he is out of his mind. One of the things I just love about the Gospels, this to me proves that, that, that the Bible is true. I, because if they were making up a story, they would never include something like this. The Son of God had a family who thought he was crazy. They include it. That just is a testimony to how genuine these authors are. If you look down a little further here at, at verse 31, uh, it's not in your bulletin, but let me read it. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Now a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let me read this verse too. This is an interesting one. John chapter 7. And it just says this... Uh, uh, for even his own brothers, John chapter 7, verse, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Even his own brothers did not believe him. Let me pray. Lord, I just would pray that this morning, 
would be a healing time, Lord. Um, I just pray, God, that, there, that whatever, whatever indictment there might be on someone's shoulders that has to do with anything about their family, Lord, I just pray it would be lifted. And I pray, God, that this morning could be a time of new beginnings. As we think about family, Lord, I pray that this morning could for some people be here this morning a benchmark where they begin to surrender their family, whatever that looks like right now, over to you. Make you Lord of that. And bring about healing, we pray in your name. Amen. And all God's people said, amen. We have, I believe, an ideal. Most of us have an ideal of what we think a family should be. Even if we were raised in a family that was far from ideal, and I was. Somewhere along the lines, I picked up a model for what I thought a family should be. I'd go over to a friend's house, and I'd look at their family and experience their mother and whatever, and I'd think, man, I, I want a family like that. And somewhere along the line, I just got this idea of what a family should be. It wasn't like my family, but when I grew up, I was going to have that kind of family. And then when I became a believer, that ideal got even intensified because it became Christianized. A Christian family is going to be one where you just have this ongoing, intimate, ever-growing, profound, romantic love for one another. And you spend time together and have long conversations about the Lord and deep things and, and are ever learning about one another and you laugh together, you cry together and you tickle one another and it just is a lot of fun. And then you have kids and that just intensifies your love together, your commitment together, your time together, and you go on vacations together. See, you guys have been watching too much of The Simpsons, huh? And then the kids, when they get a little older, you have family devotions with them, and it's kind of a, well, maybe three or four times a week at least, and, and, and the kids will just sit there with glassy eye, just receiving the wisdom that you pour forth into their precious little minds. It's an ideal of what we thought it was going to be like. And there are other people, of course, who've got problems in their marriage, but they're not Christians. No, we're, we're Christians, and we're going to just have it down right. And that's what you, you go into marriage, you go into family, you go into having kids thinking something like that, right? We all have that, the kind of dream. Here's what blows me away about it, though, is that you look at Jesus' family. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. If ever there was a man who was perfect, it is him. He was the one perfect one. You'd think that he would have a little bit of an edge in terms of achieving that kind of family that we all dream about having. And here the Son of God is, out doing his ministry, and his family is trying to do an intervention on him because they think he's out of his mind. If you're trying to save the world, this is not to your advantage. If you're, not, if you're trying to become a pastor of a church and no one in your family finds any credibility in you, in fact, they think that you're loony, that might be a big mark against you. But here they are, thinking that he's crazy. You would think that Joseph and Mary, at least, would understand what he's saying, why he's going around getting people to worship him, why he's going around claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it maybe sounds crazy to some people, but you would think that Mary and Joseph, with the dreams that they had, with the revelations that God gave them, for goodness sake, Jesus being born of a virgin, you would think that that would convince them once and for all, for all time, that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, and that he's not crazy when he says these sorts of things. But let's get real now. That was 30 years earlier. 30 years is a long time. Especially for a mother with a mother's protective love. And here her son is going out saying stuff that could very easily, will certainly probably get him crucified. 
And so her, her motherly instinct just comes in, and, and 30 years ago, yeah, there was a dream, and it was a really weird birth or whatever, but right now, it looks like Jesus is insane. we got to do something about it. And there's his brothers. They also don't believe in him. They, they didn't believe in him. And so they're going to go out and take charge of him. Now think for a second what it would be like to be in this family. I think about James. James is the only brother that I know of. Uh, he's the eldest brother. What would it be like growing up with the Son of God? I grew up with a brother who was uh, all-state football, all-American hockey and baseball and all-star everything, super jock, super popular, super everything. And do you know what it's like growing up in that shadow? It is really, really hard. It, no matter what I did, it was never good enough. It was just, you know, I could score a touchdown, but Chris would have scored three, and it goes on and on. And it was like, that was really hard to live in, and it made me really angry and a lot of rebellion or whatever. What would it be like for James to grow up with this brother who literally could do no wrong? I grew up with a brother who thought he was God. <laughs> James grew up with a brother who was God. <laughs> this has got to be very, very difficult. No matter what goes on, someone breaks a dish, someone gets mad, someone throws havoc, you know that Jesus isn't the one to blame. It's got to be James. And so it's no wonder that Jesus says, you know, a prophet is without honor in his own country, in his own household. They all think, here's the bottom line. Jesus is living in a family. He's incarnated in a family that frankly looks a little bit dysfunctional. It's not your perfect family. We've seen in the book of Hebrews that the Bible says that God, he was made in every respect just like we are. And apparently that includes some of our families. He was incarnated in a family that just did not have it all together. There was conflict there. There were problems there. Because the bottom line is this. In a fallen world, there are not perfect families. But what I get from this is that God is not afraid of diving into imperfect families and imperfect situations. And some of us need to hear that. Some of us right now are coming off of a, a Christmas event that maybe was not all that pleasant. Hmm? Maybe you're not going to say amen right now because maybe your relatives are sitting right next to you. I don't know. <laughs> but you go and you, you have an idea, right? You have an idea of what the family gathering is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be this all oh, Christmas time, precious time, wonderful time, glowing time, loving time, intimate time, honest time. But some of us know that it's just not like that. You get around mom and dad and all of a sudden you're starting acting like an eight-year-old again. Why, why do you do that? And you ask yourself, why do I do that? Why do I keep on acting like an eight-year-old? I'm, I'm an adult now. I don't need to act like that anymore. But when you're around them, you go back into that pattern. And sometimes it's a family where you just can't say certain things and you got to say certain things and you know who you can say what to and there's no talk rules and there's must talk rules and there's all sorts of pretending going on and it's anything but honest and it's anything but fun but you got to do it because it's Christmas time. And it's tough. And you come back and your head's kind of messed up from that and you wonder why can't my family be like other people's family and be so nice and wonderful. For some of us here this morning, we had an idea what marriage was going to be like. And right now, it doesn't feel like that, that dream is coming true. There's conflict, there's tension, there's problems. It can be really, really tough. It can really, really be tough sometimes. Do you ever have these quicksand conversations? I call them quicksand conversations because the more you talk and the faster you talk, the quicker you sink. 
You know, where it's just like you, 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 you're trying to, you say something and someone gets offended, so then you try to fix it and they get more offended. Then they say something and then you get mad. And, and you're trying to make ends meet. And, and the more you talk, the worse it gets. And then you finally get into a gridlock where you're so mad, no, you don't say anything, you just stare at one another. And it's, you're afraid to say anything. And you wonder, why is it so difficult? You didn't think it was going to be this difficult. You didn't think it was going to be this tough. But in a fallen world, a lot of times, marriage is tough. In a fallen world, a lot of times raising kids is really, really tough. This devotion stuff where they're staring at you with glassy-eyed, you know, and you're, they're falling in love with the Bible by the minute because you're spewing out such truth, it just doesn't always pan out that way. I've canceled devotion time because I didn't want my kids to grow up hating the Bible because the tension was so thick, this wasn't doing any good. That's, that's reality sometimes. That's reality. And you turn 13 and you hardly ever see them. And when you do see them, they're mad at you. You don't have any clue, so you ask them why you're mad, and that makes them madder, and then you're in that gridlock again. It's tough sometimes. And with the in-laws, it's tough sometimes. And with the siblings, the siblings, Christian siblings are supposed to get along together. They're supposed to have fun together. They're supposed to love one another. They're supposed to help one another. And sometimes they just try to kill one another. And you wonder, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And for some of us here this morning, the reality is that you're not even in a marriage. You're not even, maybe even in a family. Maybe you used to be. And right now, you just got to deal with that X. And that X is very hard to deal with. You got to bring the kids over there because there's a law that says you got to bring the kids over there. And man, does that mess things up. And they say things to the kids that just drive you nuts. And you're fighting very hard not to have bitterness inside of you, anger inside of you. I know, I know one lady who, here that once a month or, or once a year for a month, her kids have to go visit her, father, her, her ex-husband. And then she's got to spend the, uh, the next 11 months seeing a therapist just to get their head cleared out. But the law says they, he, they, she has to bring them to him, and that just, that just grates on her, and it causes a great deal of, of, of uh, problems there. The reality of the situation, if we're honest here, if we're, we take off pretense, is that for most of us, to some degree at least, there are people here who are just blessed with marriages made in heaven, families made in heaven, praise God for you. But the majority of us, to some degree, have the reality of things is that our families are not quite what they thought they would be, things don't line up. It's a tough situation. Several things about this. First of all, it has always been like that. Since the fall, the, the family was and still is God's ideal, the key to society. In Genesis chapter 1, he makes them male and female. That's how their image of God is to be reflected. But precisely because it was so precious, when we fell, it became so ugly. And so the Lord says to Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3, this beautiful relationship that they would have had. He said, now says, the man is going to lord over you, but your desire is going to be towards the man. And what the words there mean is that the man's going to seek to tyrannize you, to control you. Because of his superior strength, he's going to try to rule over you, and historically that's been true. But your desire will be towards him, and the word there means to manipulate, to control. In other words, he's basically saying your family is going to be something like the Simpsons. There's going to be warfare going on. There's going to be trials going on. That's what the fall does. And you talk about sibling conflict, you look at Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter. You got Cain killing Abel. Sibling conflict right there from the beginning, major conflict. But what you see is that God does not give up on Cain, and God doesn't give up on Adam and Eve, and God doesn't give up on marriage because things get tough. What you see is God saying, okay, it's bad, but we're going to work with it. We're going to bring something good out of it. And so it is throughout history. God dealing with divorce. 
His goal is to have a lifelong commitment between two people, but divorce is happening. And so what God says in, in, in Deuteronomy 24 is this. How can we make it so it's not as evil as, as it now is? How can we bring, make it, if it's going to happen, how can we make the best of it? God's plan has always been to have monogamy. But there are times in some cultures, in some places, for various reasons, where God says, you know what, we've got to go with polygamy right now. And so throughout the Old Testament, you've got polygamy. Because that's preferable to having a society where you've got women who have got no one to care for them. They're out in the streets. Maybe they're starving to death or they're involved in prostitution. So the Lord says polygamy is a better alternative. What you have throughout the Bible is a very realistic portrayal of what families in a fallen world are. Jesus even says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. He says, and, and this would not get him on focus on the family. He says, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. For I've come to divide a husband and wife. I've come to divide, uh, set a, a son against the father and a daughter against the mother. And, and the, a man's enemies shall be those in his own household. Radical stuff, but what he's saying here is this. In a fallen world, sometimes when the gospel comes in, it doesn't cure everything. Sometimes it aggravates things and things actually get worse. And it's been like that from the start. Three things to say about this. First, it's good for us to have this ideal, to have it up there and to pray towards it and to work towards it. And we want to, at Woodland Hills, have classes where we help people learn parenting skills and marriage skills. And we're starting to do that. We're developing the education system to, to give people more opportunities to learn about doing that because we believe strongly and unequivocally and unconditionally in that, striving for God's ideal. But the reality is that God works with us not just by holding up an ideal and saying to us, you ought to be, you ought to be here, you should be there, why did you blow up, why don't you do better, etc., etc. What God does is he, he wants to incarnate himself in the reality of where we're at. He wants to dive in and become a part of it. By his grace, he wants to participate in us right now, in our families, however imperfect they may be. It would be nice... It would be nice if there was never any divorce, but there is. And that doesn't push God away. It'd be nice if all marriages were made in heaven, but they're not. It'd be nice if kids were just honoring their mother and father. And it'd be nice if mothers and fathers always acted honorably. But they don't, and we don't, and they, and it gets screwed up. It'd be nice if, 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 if a family devotions always worked out right. It'd be nice if you never had to have polygamy. But the reality of the situation is this. We're in a fallen world, and what God calls us to do first and foremost is to start where we are. He starts where we're, where we're at. And rather than saying, you see, it's so easy for us to live under a condemnation, especially in the church. The church has not been good at extending grace to imperfect families and families that have blown apart. What often happens is that there's this ideal just poured up, portrayed up there and a bunch of words saying, you better do this, you gotta do this, you ought to do this, why aren't you doing this, what did you do wrong? And they come marginalized and you live with a bunch of regrets and you live with shame and you live with guilt and you're always saying, why did I get married or why did I get divorced or what did I do wrong, how did I blow it? And what I want to say here this morning more than anything else is this, those thoughts bear no kingdom fruit. They do not produce godly change. They are not of the Holy Spirit. What God wants to do with us right now is to say this, how can I be incarnated in where you're at right now? He wants to start where you're at right now. Forget the regrets, learn from it, learn from the mistakes, learn from the problems, learn from the struggles. But now the Spirit of God is saying, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? How do you bring grace out of this? 
The Lord has got for us if we'll just let him in on the inside with the reality of our situations, whatever the family may be. The Lord has got an infinite reservoir of love and peace and power and patience that he wants to impart to us. If we will but say, Lord, will you become a part of this family? The Bible says that because he was made in every respect like we are, we have a high priest who understands our infirmities. He's been in dysfunctional families. He knows something about it. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He wants in. Let him in. A second thing to say about that, and this is just a reminder, is this. It's got to be the case in the body of Christ that it's understood absolutely and unequivocally that there are no second-class Christians. Partly because of this ideal that we've had, it, 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 that ideal just sits there and torments people because once they've blown it, they've blown it, they're, they're divorced, maybe they're divorced two times, or maybe they're in a marriage that's so struggling they can't be honest with, any, with anybody about what's really going on. And the result is that there's been sideward glances and, and, and little innuendos and sometimes over-teaching that just indicts people and pushes them to a side. talked to a guy this last week who was told he could never be in ministry because he had married a divorced woman. And they told him that, well, you know, you just can't, you just can't set a good example. Since you've broken a covenant, you can't set a good example of that. And my response is just to ask the question, can't you set an example of how God can work with a person no matter what they've done? Can't you set an example of how God does not give up on you? Uh, can't God's grace do, you know, show in that way? I can't be to us right here this morning an example of a perfect father because I'm not a perfect father. You can learn some things from me maybe, but maybe there's other things you don't want to follow me in. I'm not a perfect husband, and I don't have a perfect family. And if someone's going to start drawing up some kind of criteria about what a pastor's family is going to be like, i got to be out of here. But maybe what I can be is an example of how you can be okay with where you're at, deal with where you're at, be honest with where you're at, invite the love of God to come down where you're at, and show how God's grace can use you in spite of the fact that maybe where you're at is not where, you, where the ideal is. In the body of Christ, there's no second-class citizens. We're brothers in Christ, and if God starts where we're at right now, wherever that may be, then the people of God have got to start right now, wherever that may be. And they just extend unconditional love towards the family of God that's around us. And that brings me to the third point, is this. Our idea of a nuclear family, the husband and wife who, who just raise up the family on their own, and the husband works and the wife stays at home, and that's kind of held up as a Christian ideal. That has historically never been the case. Uh, historically, a husband and wife have, have always worked. They've always lived with an extended family. I don't think God ever thought that two people could raise children on their own. I, 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 it's, it's very hard. And for one person to do it is impossible. Um, that's why God gave an extended family and a community that is there. And historically speaking, the husband and wife have always worked. And daycare has been one of the oldest institutions in, in, uh, among the human species. Because everyone has to work, and when you've got little kids, what they've done is they take someone in the tribe or someone in the village, and they say, you raise the kids, we've got we to gotta work the fields. That's always been there. And single parenthood isn't a new thing. In the past, it wasn't so much because of divorce, but it was because the mortality rate was so high. You frequently lost your spouse, either the wife in, in giving birth to the child or the man in, in war. The average life expectancy of the male up to this century in Western culture was 44 years old. So single parenthood isn't a new thing. That ideal that we've had is, is something that comes out of just a post-World War II uh, economic boom. Only the very, very rich throughout history have ever had the opportunity of, of, of having the luxury of one person staying at home and taking care of the kids. The majority of people throughout history haven't had that. 
But in, in America, after the war, we had this thing, so we, we, we got this Ozzie and Harriet kind of an ideal of what a marriage should be, and we hold that up there. And then people feel guilty if they have both people working. And they feel guilty if, if they have to bring their kids to a daycare center. It's time that we just get out of that rut. I mean, and stop indicting people for, a, for a, a, an ideal that's not even in, in Scripture. It's not historically accurate at all. God, if you look at the, the, the teachings of Jesus, it's very clear that he put more emphasis on the body of Christ as a family than on the blood family. Here's my brothers, here's my sisters, all who do the will of God are my brothers and sisters. We see in, in Hebrews chapter 2, we've been studying this, that he came to make us a family. And what we need to understand here is this. Everyone needs a family. Everyone needs people around them. Everyone needs a place where we can be honest, where we can be truthful, where we can be loved, where we can work out things together. Everyone needs a brother and a sister and a mother and a father who, who are there to help them raise kids, to help them through the problems in the marriage, to visit them when they're in a hospital. And if your blood family does that, praise God. But the way Jesus articulates it, the way Jesus teaches it, is that the body of Christ is supposed to be a family. And, and that the bond that we can have in the spirit is stronger than a bond that we could have with blood. Blood runs thicker than water. Spirit runs thicker than blood. It needs to be the case. That we, are, we are as a body, and, and, and this is true of, I think, churches in general, so far from attaining this, but this is what we need to hold out as an ideal. To have the body of Christ, the place where you have family, where you are loved, where you know people. We need to begin to work towards that. Because you can't do it alone. That's what this whole dedication was about. To have people invested in you, walking beside you. Their life is intertwined with you. It's that paracresis community we talked about the other day. Here's the final point. Your blood family you didn't choose. You were born into it. But you've got to choose your spiritual family. There's something you have to do. And that is just obeying the will of God to begin to create community. And I want to end by charging us to... Begin to think like this, begin to pray like this, begin to act like this. Reach out to people around you, brothers and sisters around you. They are spiritual family. And we can't be intimate with everybody in this auditorium right now, but you need to develop people around you that are intimate. I encourage you to begin to take advantage of some of the things that right now, this year, we're just so committed to this community thing. Take advantage of the opportunities that are here. Um, single parents, there's a singles get-together coming up. I encourage you to get there. Get to know other people. Get to become a support for people. Don't go it alone. Begin to take advantage of the education classes that we're offering here on Sunday morning. A chance to meet people. Begin to take advantage of, of, of the extra 15 minutes we have between services to be out there in the cafeteria. And when you see someone sitting by themselves, take a risk. Go, go up to them and talk with them. Share life with them. Maybe invite them over. Begin to reach out to the people around you. Get involved in ministries. We've got plenty of ministry opportunities. Take advantage of that. It's a great way to begin to discover your gift, but a great way to begin to meet people. The bottom line is that we need to become brother and sister and spiritual mother and spiritual father to one another. We're made for that. We're saved for that. We're bonded together. That's why the Bible calls us a body. And then to allow God to bring healing to some of the scars, and some of them are very deep, that are there from the, from the blood families that we have. Keep doing the blood family stuff. Make it as good as you can. Invest in it. Ask God to bring healing there. Do your family duty. I think God's for that. At the same time, we've got to realize that that's not the end all of things. If it's been blown there, that's not the end all. The body of Christ is where you have your spiritual family. Let's pray. Father, I, I just pray that... God, I just pray that the, um, 
grace of your spirit would be moving in our life right now, Lord, to bring healing to people who need healing. Lord God, there's just so many different backgrounds here. You couldn't apply it individually if we tried, but Lord, you can. And so, Lord God, just do your work, Lord. Bring healing, bring forgiveness, bring restoration. I pray, Lord God, that in each of our lives, starting today, we begin where we're at, Lord God. And I want to come against uh, the uh, shame and guilt and indictment that's been there on the part of some and ask, Lord, that your spirit would just set them free, just set people free here this morning, Lord. Set us free and begin to build us, Lord God, as a community, as a body, in love. Move us to get with one another, to embrace one another. We have to dwell together.